Welcome back. Let's run.com nation. What a show we have for you today. You may think there's nothing to talk about, but there's a ton to talk about. Since we did our last normal show where we break down the world in running, so much has happened. We've dropped three podcasts, one with Chris Zielinski, one with Jim Ryan, and one with Dina Castor. So if you've missed those, check those out. My twin brother, Weldon Johnson, has become a father. Dathan Ritzenheim has retired. Mary Kane has gotten a job. A high schooler has run four flat point eight in practice. Ted Goon Jr. Ted Ginn Jr. has lied about beating Usain Bolt in a race, and much, much more. We're going to talk about all of that. This is Let'sRun.com co-founder Robert Johnson. This week, I'm joined by a staff writer, Jonathan Galt, my better half, superior version of my genetics, Weldon Johnson, is finding fatherhood to be a little bit more difficult than he anticipated and will not be on the podcast. But folks, we'd love to hear from you, and we do. We have some listener audio. We'll play that later in the show. Give us a call, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. But John, it's pretty exciting. I'm back to have the normal show. I'm excited to have the normal show because I do feel like there's a lot to talk about. Where do you want to start? Well, I'm glad this is a normal show as well. I love talking to our guests. We had some great ones, Dina Castor, Jim Ryan, Chris Zielinski. If you haven't listened to those podcasts, go back and listen to all of them because they're really terrific. But Robert, I know more than anything, you like this podcast because it's an avenue for you to just get your opinions out in the world. Go on rants, tell people what's what, let the world know how it really should be, and we finally have an opportunity to do that. So let's start, I think, with the most recent news, which is Mary Kane and Nick Willis signing with Tracksmith. This is a big difference. Normally, athletes, when they sign with a brand, they're independent contractors. Nick and Mary have signed contracts. They're full-time employees. Nick is the athlete experience manager. Mary is the New York community manager. Now, they're going to continue competing as elite runners, but they're also going to have to actually do some, well, not office-type work, but more traditional employee-type stuff as well. Robert, what was your reaction when you heard the news, and what do you think about it? My reaction was, wow, what a brilliant move by Matt Taylor. Full disclosure, longtime friends with Matt Taylor. Matt Taylor was a teammate of my brother at Yale University. He was like the cool younger guy. You know, like when you're a senior and like you don't hang out with sophomores, but we hung out with him all the time. Like he was amazing. And John, you may not know this. Matt Taylor was a early employee of Let's Run. Well, I don't know if employee is the right word. We've paid Matt Taylor. Back in the early days when it was just me and Weldon, we would have weekly conference calls with Matt, and Matt was supposed to organize us and get us focused on, on task at hand. And he had some really good ideas. We just ultimately didn't want to pay him enough. So we've had no, we've had numerous people throughout throughout the 20 years of Let's Run's existence trying to get Weldon and I focused to run this like a business. We had my dad do it, my uncle. None of it's worked. Matt couldn't do it. But um, Didn't Matt also hook you guys up to go to McDonald's with Usain Bolt? Yes, he took Weldon to... I think the Boston Celtics game's courtside. Um, so full disclosure, totally biased in, in favor of Matt Taylor. And actually, I don't know, if John, if you can see, I'm wearing... You are wearing Tracksmith apparel as we speak. Head to toe. I pretty much... This is one of the advantages of COVID-19. 
I pretty much just don't get really dressed up. Um, I just, I, as a member of the media, I do go to my central business. I have an office that's about a quarter mile from my house because with the baby there and everything, it's kind of crowded. And a lot of times I just put on my Tracksmith pants, my Tracksmith shirt, walk in, and I'll, I'll sleep in them. They're very comfortable. All right, all right. Well, Robert, you're giving him too much advertising here. Tracksmith, they make good gear. But no, here's the thing I think about this deal. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So anyways, I, yeah, I'm biased. But I, I thought about it. And I was like, my God, Mary Kane is the perfect person to hire if you're looking for publicity. And also, actually, her job, she's perfect for that job. She's already doing like treadmill classes in New York City. This is the person that's going to organize runs in New York City that are going to end at the Tracksmith shop if they have a shop or get the brand up. She's got like, like a, already a following in New York. And to be honest, their, their stuff is very expensive. She comes from a wealthy background. I mean, she's the perfect, she's like the perfect demo for them too. Like rich. <laughs> runner with brand with brand name so and to get that broken in the new york times you know how much that's worth like i'm shocked that sort of other shoe companies wouldn't have hired her people are like oh but is she going to make the olympics no she's not going to make the olympics in my opinion but it doesn't matter right her exactly. her her brand name tracksmith is not about the vapor flies they're about feeling good about the clothes you wear and looking good in them too i mean how many Female athletes in the United States, how many female runners are better known than Mary Kane? I would say she's probably in the top 10 in terms of name recognition. Certainly after her New York Times story last fall, a lot of people like Mary Kane. A lot of people look up to her. They're inspired by her. And Tracksmith with this new partnership, I think it's perfect for taking an athlete who they the value that she presents to them is far beyond what she actually does on the track. And that's the whole point of this sponsorship or, well, not sponsorship, employee contracts, but you know, it's, it's kind of a de facto sponsorship. So I, I agree. I think it's a really smart move. And then Nick Willis is another guy who very well liked, very passionate about the sport, wants to improve it, has a lot of good things to say, good ideas, and is sort of winding down his career. Next year, he's going for his fifth Olympic team, but he's a two-time Olympic medalist. So he has a lot of credibility and I think he, that's another guy that you can bring in and he's worth a lot more than just what he does in running because he'll host events. He likes reaching out. He's very active on Twitter and was always reaching out to people through there. So I, I think this is a good move for Tracksmith. I'm fascinated though. I, we had an interview with Nick Willis on the site and one of the questions I asked him was kind of personal, was asking how much money he was making from this new deal. He didn't answer. That's totally within his rights. But I'm very curious, Robert, their contracts. I mean, do you think, how do you think it compares to a typical running contract? Is it going to be more or less than what they're making before? What does a typical running contract mean? I mean, well, I, I guess of someone of their caliber, I guess we don't really totally know. Do well, we? Mar so. Mary came, Mary came was making zero before. So I guarantee she's making a, a big raise. I, I don't think they're making a ton of money. I think they're probably making a little bit more than what the average Tracksmith employee is making. Um, but in, in terms of, uh, of Nick, I mean, basically, He's not retired, but he's probably got one big run next year for the Olympics. And then maybe he'll, you know, he'll keep going. He, he still loves to run. Maybe he tries to make a sub four minute mile at, at, at um, age 40, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, Tracksmith really is about the storytelling of running and sort of the mythology of running. And, 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 and that's why I think these guys are, are, are good for that. Um, one thing I thought was brilliant though was just the way it was, it was pulled up. They got the New York Times to write about this. 
And the ironic thing is, basically, the average pro, let's take the normal contract, average pro, you get paid just to run. You don't have to, you don't have to work in an office. You get, now, middle, you don't get health benefits. You're a contractor, so you're not an employee, but you just run. Here, they're, they have to run, well, not have to, but, you know, they signed, voluntarily signed up for it. They run and work for the company, but they somehow spun that as this is superior to the normal endorsement contract. Yeah, I mean, so, I don't. That, in, in, in some ways, you're, no, I've seen outside that magazine, New York Times write this. It's brilliant. Like, you're actually doing more than the average runner for your money. But it's presented as a superior model. Now, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that it's not superior. But I just feel like everyone's bought this method. It's like, oh, this is the better way to do it, you know. And I, I think that I personally, this is why we founded Let'sRun.com. When we quit our jobs in 2000 to train for the trials, even though I didn't make the trials, I was hoping to make them then train, but I came up one minute short. Um, we were bored. Like you can't just run all day. So we started Let's Run on the side. So I, if I was a runner, I actually would rather be an employee. And, and do a few hours of work a day so I can build up a skill set so that when you're Nick Willis's age and you're what, 37, 38 years old, or how old is he? 37. You know, you, you have a career to fall back on. So I, I think it's a win win um, for, for both of them. It gives them some stability, healthcare, stuff like that. So, you know, pretty neat stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that. Uh, I do think that these shoe companies should be providing healthcare anyway, so maybe they'll all become employees. I mean, in Japan, you sign with a corporate team. It's, it's kind of similar to the Japanese model. You 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 run for Toyota. Now, I don't know how much work they actually do for Toyota, but I think they do a little bit. Let's pause for a moment and give a shout-out to the sponsor of this week's podcast, TheFeed.com. They've got you covered. Need something for your running? Want to take your running to the next level? Go there. You can get the Martin Sports Drink. You can get a PR lotion, even an AeroFit respiratory muscle training device. Pretty cool stuff. They've also got some COVID-19 stuff. How about an immunity boosting pack or even their BLDG active antimicrobial hand and face spray. So check it out. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, thefeed.com slash let's run. And you'll save 15% on your entire order. And while you're on the internet, why don't you check out the letsrun.com shoe site? Go to letsrun.com slash shoes and you can find the best prices and the best reviews. If you don't need to buy shoes, how about you review a shoe and help somebody else out? Thanks so much for supporting us. Yeah, I will be interested to see if this has an effect on other brands. Brooks, Nike, Adidas, do they start follow they're not going to follow this model for all of their athletes, but do they create a couple new positions? within their companies for the, this sort of thing. Yeah. And one thing that was interesting to me was they're like, okay, you're going to, you know, you're going to do these other things outside of just running. But I was kind of thinking about it. I'm like, a lot of runners already do that in the sense of they're trying to create their, their, their social media profile. Cause they think in their next contract, when they're up, they want to show they have a social media following. So they're posting on Instagram, they're posting on Twitter. So I, I, one of the things Nick said though, was that, he didn't think that a lot of athletes were giving feedback or given opportunities to sort of display their creativity or that sort of thing within their companies. Maybe that was the case for him, but I do feel like from other athletes I've talked to, they do get feedback. I mean, they, they get to test products out. Noah Lyles, he's really into music and drawing. And I feel like Adidas has sort of incorporated that into his whole deal. A lot of the, I I think Des Linden, I think she seems pretty, 
a lot of the Brooks athletes I've talked to seem to feel like a pretty good connection with Brooks. They're a smaller company than Nike or Adidas, but I haven't heard many complaints from their end about, you know, being involved in the brand. So I don't know, maybe it was just his case or maybe it is a widespread issue, but I think certainly there's an opportunity for this sort of model to become more widespread. I don't think it's going to replace the traditional athlete sponsor relationship, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Yeah, but I just thought it was really masterfully. I, I feel like Matt Taylor's playing chess sometimes. Other play, people are playing checkers. To sign Mary Kane was just a brilliant move. And John, we've done this podcast from the Tracksmith headquarters in Boston. He's had us on. He's reached out to us. So yes, we're biased. We should probably stop talking about it because people who think it's overpriced and don't want to talk about it are ready for us to talk about other things. So yeah, let's move on. The other announcement that came out yesterday on Tuesday was the Diamond League has said... They are trying to have a 2020 season and they came out with a new schedule. They've canceled or postponed every meet until August 14th, apart from the Bizlet games in Oslo, which have been rebranded as the impossible games, very small fields and those and sort of exhibition events, but they're still trying to go forward from it. But then World Athletics has basically said, we're going to try to have a normal diamond league season. They're not going to have a diamond league final. You won't get points, but they are going to try and have all these meets. So you start with Monaco, August 14th, then Gateshead, Stockholm, and Lausanne, Brussels, Paris, Naples, Shanghai, Eugene, Doha, and then a second meeting in China, which still doesn't have a venue. And that would be on October 17th. So I've looked through the schedule. There are a couple things that stand out to me. First of all, I don't know about this pre-classic. I'm still skeptical that the pre-classic will happen at all because they've scheduled it for October 4th. That's the same day as the London Marathon. It's the same day as week four of the NFL season. But more impre- more pressingly, the state of Oregon has banned mass gatherings through the end of September already. This is on October 4th, so obviously very close to September. And the University of Oregon has come out and said they can't confirm that Hayward Field will be available. They don't know, you know if students are going to be back or if they're going to be allowed. And Tom Jordan, the meat director, has said the whole idea behind October 4th was kind of be a placeholder because things are chasing, changing so dramatically. It's not that October 4th is our steadfast date. So okay, what do you think about this thing, Robert? Let me interrupt here. You're overthinking this. You, you wrote some piece about, I don't know if you wrote a piece, or maybe you just told me about how it's the same day as the London Marathon and some NFL game. Who cares? That doesn't have anything to do with it. I think it does. Putting if This is the only Diamond League held in the United States. And if NBC, it's usually on NBC or NBC Sports. And now it's just going to get no one's going to watch it if the NFL is happening on the same day, Robert. What, what do you mean? NBC doesn't have day NFL games anyway. So. But, but CBS and Fox do, and people will watch those instead of track. I don't think it's the same demographic. The, the track audience will watch track. And Everyone loves the NFL, Robert. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's a. This isn't like a massive problem. But if you're trying to grow the sport in the United States, you don't put it up head to head against the Patriots and the Chiefs, which is what they're doing. It's not ideal. The whole schedule has been reorganized. I know it's like a one-year thing. But I'm just saying it's, it's not great. They're not worried about the NFL. They're, they're, they're real quite, a, I want to give World Athletics a, a big props for just putting a schedule out there. It, it may never happen, but we need to act like we're going to go back to action. Like, I, I'm not a, I don't want to be accused of being a COVID denier, but they should definitely be having sporting events in the fall. They should definitely be having college events in the fall. I don't think you can say definitely about anything, Robert. You don't know what the situation is going to look like in the fall. Please, 
you can't know that. No one does. Well, okay. Well, then neither can the governor of Oregon know in five months. John, do you realize it's May 13th right now? This disease has basically been around for five months. So we're anticipating right now. They didn't even know this disease basically existed five months ago. And the governor of Oregon's like, oh, in five months, we can't do anything. How in the hell does he or she know that? They don't know that. She, Kate and, Brown, by the way. Okay. And, and you know, so... I don't know what it's going to be like, but I do have the CDC deaths rates in front of me right now. And I know that for people under like the age of 24, this disease is less dangerous than the flu and pneumonia. So that's what I know. So for an athlete, people are like, the athletes might get sick. Okay. I don't know if they'll have this meet with fans and maybe they don't want to hold the meet with fans. I'm talking about holding a sporting event without fans. I don't think that there's hardly any risk in that. And yes, an athlete could get sick. But guess what? If a 21-year-old professional athlete gets sick, it's very, 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 very unlikely that they're going to have any serious serious complications from it. And if they don't want to run, if they don't want to play in the NBA and make $700,000 a week or whatever they make, they don't have to. No one's forcing these athletes to do it. Robert, I think the biggest concern is not that these 21-year-olds are going to get sick. It's that they're going to get sick and then infect a 45-year-old or a 60-year-old with health issues or a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old and allow this virus to continue spreading. The idea is to stop the spread so anyone getting infected is bad. I think this is a little bit too... You know, people probably didn't tune in to hear us talk about COVID and that sort of thing. I, I agree. I think it's a good thing that they're trying to have a season this fall. I think it's also too early to say, oh, this meet's not going to happen. I'm just going to say, you know, we're still in the realm of uncertainty here. We don't know if this stuff's going to happen, but I, I like that they're trying to hold the season. And it might be a little different. There might not be fans. There might be fewer athletes or events. But I think having some trap meets at some point in 2020 would be good for the sport. Good. We're in agreement. John, one real quick. I, I, I just, I don't want to say that this, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that COVID-19, I want to be up for, for the record. I don't want to say that it's less severe than the flu, but for certain demographics, it appears to be. And I read an article on Bloomberg.com saying, you know, even if we get to a hundred thousand deaths for the 15 to 24 age group, it'll be 55% as lethal as the flu, as dangerous as the, as, as the common flu. And if we get to 200,000 deaths, then it'll be about 10% more dangerous than the flu. This is U.S. deaths. And people say, so I, then that was one guy taking some stats. So I'm like, well, how do I know that st- those stats are accurate? Well, last night I went to the CDC website. And now this, this is from February 1st through May 2nd. So they're not updated and their numbers don't add up to, add up to 80,000 deaths or whatever we've had. So they're behind. There's a lag in these deaths. But between 15 and 24, there's been 184 deaths uh, by flu and pneumonia and just 48 from COVID-19. And from even from the next age group up to the, from 25 to whatever, 34, there's been like 629 uh, flu deaths and 317 COVID deaths. So, it, you know, and yes, Getting the adults, the, the older people sick is a major concern, John. But don't go see your older people. If you're a 24-year-old professional athlete, don't go see your parents. I haven't seen my parents. I didn't see my mother on Mother's Day. My in-laws live an hour away. We haven't touched them. I'm not an idiot. And one of my friends, again, I always cite my Hillary Clinton speechwriting friend, but 
she's like, people are not rational about this. She's like, people want to make this some political argument and it's stupid. Like the people on the far left want everyone to stay in their house and no one to get sick. That's not realistic. The people on the right are afraid their freedoms are being impinged upon and want to go outside without a mask. Don't be an idiot. Social distance, wear a mask. But don't say that we can't go back to some semblance of normality in the society. I don't think anyone's saying that. Hopefully by the fall, we'll be more normal than we are right now. I'm sure we will. Anyway, Rojo's rant over. We're going to move back to running topics here. Robert, Dathan Ritzenhain retired last week. And I'm sure you've got some hot takes about this. Now, we talked about the greatest races of his career, the greatest moments of his career. There were many of them. Two-time footlocker champion. He had a great NCAA cross-country duel with Ryan Hall in 2003 in which he prevailed. That's an all-time kick. If you guys watch the last 100 meters, it's just those two throwing haymakers at each other. It's incredible. He got a bronze at world in the World Junior cross-country race in 2001. He's the last American man to medal at World Cross in any of the races. World cross-country, sorry, World Half Marathon bronze in 2009, American record in the 10K, sorry, in the 5K in 2009, three-time Olympian. So tons of great memories about Ritz. But you also wanted to mention some of the lowlights of Ritz's career. No, I mean, hey, John. I don't know. I see a section on our Google Doc saying the lowlights of Ritz's career. I, I, I didn't write it. I assume you wanted to talk about it, Robert. Whoa. Podcast history, folks, is being made right now. I just looked up at my screen. I'm shocked. Not only do we have my twin brother, Weldon Johnson, joining the show mid-show, and a Let's Run First, and perhaps podcasting first worldwide. A three-day-old baby is on the show as well, or five. How old are you? I don't want to say her name, Walden. We don't want people stalking her. No, you, we can announce her name. Baby Cece. Charlotte Catherine Johnson Cece. She's actually six days old. She's here. Make some noise, Cece. Hit the microphone. You hear, you hear that? You hear baby sounds? We did. She looks very peaceful, Walden. How, how have... Have you, has your life been peaceful over the last week? Oh, yeah. It's easy. This is cake. You know, all the advice on Let's Run. Who Newborns, no problem. Just kidding. First female guest ever on the podcast either, too, right? What We had Dina Castor on just two days ago. Well, then, you got to give us some credit for that. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, you know, <laughs> we now have Steve's daughter. We now have two, two female members of the Let's Run.com team, so... I think we need a splash page actually we need the announcement of both kids on, on on let's run so maybe i'll get my head above water and do that today well and she arrived well then on may 7th which is the 20 year anniversary of the 2000 olympic marathon trials which is one of the big events in the founding of let's run i find it very appropriate wow really exactly 20 days 20 years exactly 20 years and that means it's sort of this month the unofficial 20th anniversary of let's run.com perfect timing I thought you were going to say, when was the Jim Ryan podcast? That was the same day as this first sub four? Yes. Roger Bannister's first sub four. May 6th, yep. How, how do y'all view May 7th, 2000? Was that the death of an Olympic dream or was that the birth of the idea of, of chasing your dreams? Like, well, they obviously did not make the Olympic team that year. Like, No, it was... 
my dream my dream was alive and well i like i had been a hack and i had like become like a guy to watch for the marathon and i'm like hey i got a chance to make this the next time around the dream was alive and well like i believed in myself i was a much better runner i ended up getting fourth in the country twice the next two years you know somehow i beat abdi abdurrahman in my last time i raced him so my my career was it was like alan webb's you know just short and brilliant <laughs> it was kind of like jesus may 7 2000 was kind of like jesus's death it was just the beginning Oh my gosh! Please help! Us. Oh my God! We've now Webb's now compared himself to Alan Webb, and Robert, not satisfied with that comparison, has lifted the stakes and compared him to Jesus Christ. So I don't know how else you can compare yourself right now for the rest of this podcast. It's only downhill from there. You guys have been killing it, though, man. The Jim Ryan podcast. I don't know if I was just sleep deprived or what, but that was one of the best ones ever. I thought Jim was tremendous. Well, thank well, well, then, giving us credit for a podcast of which he was not a part. I, I got to step in. Though. I'm getting worried. That's why I had to like grab the baby and come to this podcast. A few, you know, things. John now describes himself as the host of the podcast. I feel like there's a battle behind the scenes for power. I'm going to come back, and I think there's laws against that. If you guys bump me out when I'm gone, but um, I'm not sure. You know, paternity leave isn't as strong as maternity leave, so I need some lawyers, please. And I heard Robert's back down from the t-shirt idea. It's just legal mayhem at let'srun.com. John, Weldon sounds different, doesn't he? His voice. Folks, I've talked to him a few times since he's been home from the hospital, and he's admitted it's a lot harder than he thought it was going to be. So, Well, Robert, I saw there was an article that's saved as a draft in Let's Run right now, the let'srun.com guide to fatherhood. I mean, you should be offering him some tips. I haven't shared that with Weldon because I don't want to publish it now because someone's going to steal my book idea, John. And you don't believe I'm going to publish this in book form. So. You should do an ebook, Robert, ebook. Yeah. Let's see. I think it's more likely that you publish the book than that you ever break three hours in the marathon again. How about we say that, Robert? Fair enough. So what were the big meets this last week? What did I miss? Well, well, you missed. You joined at the perfect time because we're just about to move on to the topic that we should have led the show with. We should have teased the show with. Dathan Ritzenheim has retired, and really, to me, he represents the last of the big three. The high school class of 2000... 2001. Oh, he represents... That, that's what he represents to you? I mean, he represents that to everything. Everyone, Robert. He is the last of the big three. I know, but, but I'm saying someone right now who's 25 years of age has a hard time understanding how monumental... Dathan Ritzenheim, Alan Webb, and Ryan Hall, the guys that went one, two, three at Foot Lockers in 2000 were, um, the 90s were terrible for U.S. distance running. There was really no hope. And then these three total studs came out. And this was also sort of right at the same time the internet's getting going. Dice Sets pops up. Let's Run pops up. This was the first time you could follow people on a day-to-day -day basis. And these guys are all studs, and they all go on to setting American records as professionals and giving hope to a new generation. And it, it's, it's just amazing how U.S. distance running changed so quickly and just the society changed so quickly. I mean, our buddy, Eric Hawkins, Weldon's Yale teammate, was like at one point ranked in the top 10 in the U.S. in, in high school 3,200 meters. You had to wait five weeks for Track and Field News to update their list and publish a magazine for you to, to see if he was still in it. So he runs 9-11 at the Texas Relays or 9-12. He's on the list at number three. And then when he, the end of the season is out, he's not on the list anymore. So it, it's fascinating. But 
We really need to talk about Ritz's highs and lows, John, but more importantly, who had the better career, who had the worst career, Dathan, Allen, or Ryan Hall? I mean, it's such a fascinating debate to me because we were arguing about this over text like late last night, and everyone has a different opinion. And I think there's a the reason why it's a great debate is because there's a legitimate case to be made for all three. I did a Twitter poll the day Ritz retired. The results were 37% in favor of Ryan Hall, 36% in favor of Dathan Ritzenhine, and 26% in favor of Alan Webb. That's about as even a split you're going to get on any question. And I think it's so interesting. We were talking about this. Weldon last night is like, oh, it can't be Ritz. Ritz is last. And then Eric, our Webb guy, is saying, no, Ritz is, Ritz is first. He had the longest, most complete career. And I'm thinking... I just, I don't know. I, it's very hard to say where all these guys rank. But Robert, you have a t- hot take on everything. Go off. Well, Weldon and I are genetic equals for a reason. I'm like, okay, it's definitely not Ritz. That's what I thought. But Eric, the web guy, and Steve both instantly said Ritz. They didn't even hesitate. And I texted running with the Buffalo's author, Chris Lear. Obviously, he's a little biased because he also wrote a book on Alan Webb. He immediately said Alan Webb. Um, to, to me, it, if you look at the at their entirety of their career, the Olympic teams and sort of just, you know, the overall volume of the work, I would say that Ritz would get the nod, but he's not even to me. The first one I ruled out was Ritz, but he's got an American record at, at the half marathon. What the number two time at the time, all time in the half. I mean, American record in the 5,000 number two, all time in the half marathon. He's in the top five, all time in the marathon, right at two Oh seven. He's not number two in the half marathon anymore. Leonard Courier, yeah, Rupp, but he was both broken. Okay, at one point, um, he's got the world bronze half. You know, a couple Olympic teams. I mean, how many Olympic teams did Hall and Webb make? Webb made one. So Webb made one. Hall made two. Ritz made three. But the whole thing is like, what do you value in this? Do you value Olympic teams? Do you value being the best in the world? It's. Did Ritz ever win a national championship on the track? He did not. It's sort of interesting, right? Like, I feel like Austin Ritz has been hanging on for how many years now? Like, what's his last major accomplishment? His last accomplishment was getting seventh in the 2015 Boston Marathon. He, he's run a couple decent half marathons since then, but nothing, nothing special. Look, the numbers may add, may add up and say Ritz had a better overall career, but I'm not picking Ritz. Why? Because he never moved, moved the needle for me. And full disclaimer, I used to be the biggest Ritz fan ever. Like when he was winning those footlockers, it was amazing. When he ran his first, his first 10,000, I went on Let's Run and said, hype it up. This could be the first non-African guy under 27 minutes. I was so excited. But basically for his entire pro career, he never moved the needle for me. When did I wake up excited to watch Dathan Ritzenheim run and think, oh my God, he might take on and beat the best in the world? I would say never. Now, when he ran that 12.56, it was amazing, but it was so unexpected and he didn't even win the US title that year. He did run an amazing race at Worlds, but nobody noticed it because Bikili and the medalists were like 40 seconds ahead of him, 20 seconds ahead for bronze. But 27-20 in like 75-degree weather is incredible at Worlds to get six. He smoked Rupp in that race. But never won a U.S. title on the track. And so, but I never woke up once thinking, oh, my God, this guy's going to beat everybody in the world. And admittedly, I didn't watch the World Half Marathon bronze live. But with Ryan Hall, I got up one one night, one morning at 4 a.m. to watch him run London. And I turned that TV on, and the 30K leaderboard came up, and he was in the lead at the London Marathon. Alan Webb, it may have only been a week or two, but my God, he smoked everybody in that Paris Diamond League. 
Like there was a brief moment in time when Alan Webb was the best miler in the planet. There was a brief moment in time. Well, I wouldn't say Ryan Hall was ever the best marathon on the planet, but there was hope that he could compete with the best with Ritz. That never happened is a pro in my opinion. Let me jump in. Cause baby's got to be fed. I was just looking at some of Ritz's accomplishments. I, I sort of agree in like the, 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 when you have to watch them or whatever, every time Alan Webb races a pro, you had to f- tune in to find out what was happening. There, there's been nothing else like it. There was a time for Ryan Hall, like he was racing in London. You were waking up to see it. That 59.43 was such a shocker. It was like the Slinsky thing. You're just like, oh my gosh, and the Americans are good at the marathon. Can he compete? You know, he's in London up in the lead pack. And Ritz is a pro. I mean, one NCA cross earlier on, he had so much promise, but like, most of his pro accomplishments are really what that 2009 season. I was kind of shocked. All those things came real quick. Like he was kind of doing all right. He switches from Brad Hudson to Alberto, and, and then he just killed it that fall. Right? That was the 12:56. That was that was the same year he beat Rupp at Worlds, yep. and that was the same year he got third at World Half. I don't know. It, it just like we didn't know, kind of know what was going on. He's doing the World Half. It's sort of the World Half doesn't get the fanfare, and then after that, it was a little bit of disappointment, right? I feel like, I, I don't know, you kind of had this brief burst as a pro and then some highlights after that, but it wasn't, with Hall, you're like, oh, he's one of the best in the world maybe right now in the marathon. I mean, maybe that was a bit of an unfair assessment, but sort of Ritz, he was kind of stuck to, between distances, right? He was really good at 10K, but not good enough. Uh, Rupp got that medal. At the marathon, pretty good, but not good enough. So, whereas Hall, his best at the marathon was better. And then, you know, Rupp all along at both events is better. So, Ritz's best distance was the half marathon. But the problem is, you can't be an American and be a half marathon specialist because you're not going to make money that way. You need to pick the marathon or the 10K. He was pretty good at both of them. But I think if, you know, he got the, half, the medal at the world half, which. Again, World Half does not have the prestige of a World Championships on the track or an Olympics, but Dathan Ritzenhain is the only American man to finish even in the top 10 in that event. It's just incredibly hard if you're not born in Africa to succeed in that event, and he got a bronze medal. That's pretty incredible. All right, guys. I need to jump off. Your wife is... I told her 10 minutes. It's been more than 10. But sponsorships are changing from what I understand. Like, should I try to get a shoe deal now? I mean, there's a lot of potential in this, this little kid. Or, uh, you know, how, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, get what you can. Well done. Don't sign some lifetime deal, but uh, we need CC. You know, she needs to help pay the bills. I could probably pitch her to multiple sports at this point. I mean, who knows what sport she might want to do? Or maybe like, you know, companies want to sponsor her. She could be a future CEO right now. There's a lot of about- your wife was what field hockey or lacrosse in college. I mean, you got great athletic genes, right? Yes, thank you. All right, CC. You guys can't see this. Is why we we, we got to start doing video. But she enjoyed the podcast. She loved it. She started listening to Dina Castor last night. I mean, I thought the Ryan Hall one was great. Dina's really good. I'm only about five minutes in. So plug for those guys. Keep up the great work, guys. Out. We're out. Wow, John. I mean, you're not close to fatherhood right now. But did you notice how he, he was so tired? He was saying, I really enjoyed the Ryan Hall interview. We didn't have a Ryan Hall interview. I did notice that. Yeah. Well, I was trying to separate that between just the habit that we have of misspeaking and a mistake 
caused by sleep deprivation, and I think it's kind of hard to tell. Anyways, let's get back to Ritz, Paul, and Webb, because I've still got a lot more to say. Yeah, I think the point you made about Webb, and every, or I think maybe it was Weldon saying you had to watch every Webb race, but the point you made about him for a brief moment in the summer of 2007, he was the best miler in the world. He ran 330 to win that Golden League in Paris. He beat Bernard Lagarde, who was the world champion that fall, not once, but twice, both at the Grand Prix meet in New York and also at USA's. And you could, you really couldn't make the argument that Hall or Ritz at either point, at any point, was ever the best in the world. It's kind of crazy, actually. Alan Webb is the only one of the three who's ever been ranked in the top 10 in track and field news world rankings. He was seventh in 2005 and sixth in 2007. And I also think that they all had legendary moments. I mean, Ritz's 1256 was really good. His footlocker wins are really good. Ryan Hall running 59.43 at Houston was amazing. But to me, I think the signature performance of all of them is Alan Webb running 353 at the pre-classic in 2001 to break Jim Ryan's record. I mean, 353 as an 18-year-old high schooler is just ridiculous. It's a legendary performance. I don't know if we're ever going to break see it broken because remember, Jim Ryan was... You know, basically one of the best in the world when he ran his 355 in 1965. Do you disagree, Robert? Do you think that was the most iconic performance that any of them ever produced? Maybe not in an absolute sense, but yes. I mean, I I was trying to think about, like again, like what races did I watch? I remember – now, I did drive to Penn Relays to watch Rich run in high school. I wanted to watch him run the 5,000, so I drove up there. Um, so it, it's kind of ironic. A lot of their best performances were – I mean, I remember a lot of these high school races. Um but the 353, I, I, we were in New York on vacation or something. Weldon and I had to walk in. It wasn't like you could watch it on your phone back then. We walked into a sports bar because our hotel did not have the right channel. And we saw it in there, and there was no sound. And I was timing it on my watch, and I hit 353. I was like, because he was way back and moved up. I was like, oh, my God. So, you know, and think about that. Yes, I think that was the big one. Which of these guys, you know – well, I think that Ryan Hall, you know, he ended up on an AT&T ad, didn't he, as a professional? I mean, he, he kind of got some pretty big publicity as, as the top American marathoner um, there for a while and destroying the destroying Ritz at the trials that one year in New York. That was when he was a peak peak Ryan Hall. But look at Al Webb. I mean, he was on Late Night David Leverman. He was being invited to the White House. Like, this guy was mainstream, mainstream. They cut into... Sports Center to show his USA final live, right? Was that 2001, Robert? Yes. He moved the needle more than the others, definitely. Um, but I, now, if you ask me whose career would I rather have, maybe we hold that question for next week. Cause I don't know. It would be frustrating to be any of these three guys, to be that good in high school, but then, yes, you're sitting American record, but you're frustrated. And the, the inconsistency, particularly for Hall and Webb, was, would be maddening to deal with. you know. But... Um, but I don't. I don't think Ryan Hall was all that inconsistent. I think he was. He was very good for a, a stretch of about five years, and then just totally burned out. But in that stretch, I mean, you look at his resume. Here are his marathons, starting with his debut in two thousand seven. He gets seventh at London in two hundred eight twenty four. First at the Olympic trials, legendary victory, huge negative split two hundred nine oh two. He won that race by over two minutes against Ritz. Then marathon number three two hundred six seventeen for fifth at London. That's his PR on a non-aided course. Tenth at the Olympics that fall in 2008. 2009, fourth New York. 2009, third Boston. Flip the order of those chronologically. Fourth in Boston in 2010. 
fourth in Boston in 2011, fifth in Chicago that fall, then second at the Olympic trials in 2012. That's a stretch of five years where there's not really a bad marathon. I mean, the worst marathon there is probably 10th at the Olympics, and still that's pretty decent. I think in that stretch, he was really, really good. But after that, he did nothing. And in 2012, he was only 30. He was 29 years old at the time of his last great marathon. Right. And first of all, I know the Ritz fans are going to be like, yes, and Ritz beat him. He was ninth in the Olympics. I don't give a crap who was ninth and who was 10th. The, the reading that list while you were pulling up that list, I pulled up Ritz's career marathons. And this is why Ritz cannot be the b- number one. You can say he had the more, you know, longer career. First of all, he hasn't done anything in five years. Secondly, here's his career marathons. And, uh, John, I, 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 I had a list of Ritz's. Well, we, we can go into this in a minute. His biggest bombs, but one of them was his, his debut. He got paid like hundreds of thousands. It wouldn't surprise me if he got $200,000 to run this race. It was so hyped. People were shocked how much money he made. I would be, Stunned if he didn't make at least $100,000 for this race. New York debut, 214.01. Terrible. 11th. Then he gets second in the Olympic trials, 211.07. They got absolutely destroyed by Ryan Hall. He did get ninth in the Olympics. Okay. But again, it's, you know, I don't really care who's ninth. Then we're going to go 210 flat in London. That's not good. 212.33. That's seventh in New York. Not really very good. Then he gets 209.55. But that was fourth in the Olympic trials. So he doesn't make the Olympic team. When he runs 207.47, so he finally runs a good time. But how many times did Hall run faster than 207.47? A ton. Well, twice, actually. His best marathon ever in terms of in, in terms of times was a ninth place in Chicago where he was never in the lead pack, never even considering it. Then he runs 209.45 in Chicago. Now, he was fifth. But 209, come on, in Chicago? That's not good. 211.20 for seventh in Boston. A bunch of DNFs. 216 in Boston, DNF. So those marathons, like basically I, as a pro, where was he going to make his mark? Yes. He had that one amazing 5,000, but the half marathon is not a real distance. And that was his best distance as a pro. So he's based in my mind. I view him as a marathoner, as a pro, he had no shot in the 10,000. Although I guess Galen Rupp proved that wrong. That American could do it in the 10,000, but he's a marathoner and none of those are really world-class competitive or even close to competitive. I mean, there's no doubt. You compare the two as marathoners. I mean, Ryan Hall was one of the best American marathoners ever. Ritzenhain, 207, was really good. But he was only one top five in a world marathon major. He didn't have a, an amazing marathon career. But you look at all the other accomplishments across the other distances, it's pretty good. The one thing I find uh, – Robert, go ahead. You have another point to make here. Well, no. I just – I wanted to bring up the, the – the. you made fun of me when I put this in our Google Doc as we prepared for the show. The – you know, but we talk about the highlights. Let's talk about the lowlights of Ritz because this is kind of what angered me as a fan. Now, I was a fan, so that's the thing, folks. Self-professed biggest Dathan Ritzenheim fan in the world at one point. Yes, and I feel a little burned. Like I, like I was in love with Ritz, and he burned me. So I, I guess when he also joined the Evil Empire, Nike Salazar. So are you going to be ranting about Ben Sorrell on the podcast five years from now, Robert? Yeah, maybe. So. Okay, so we, we talked about his marathon debut when he got paid probably over certainly over $100,000, I would think, and he runs 214. Not good. Um, he also, before that, he ran World Cross as a pro. He was very much hyped in 2005. This guy was a cross-country legend. Why didn't he run World Cross more often? I think he ran it once in high school, right? So he ran it. He got third as a high school senior in the junior race. Then as a 19-year-old, he actually got 24th in the senior race, which is pretty good in 2002. 
But then I think he only ran it one more time after that in 2005, and he only got 62nd, as you said. Yeah, six, 62nd? Ritz, come on, dude. So actually, when I, when I asked John Kellogg what was Ritz's greatest accomplishment, he said third in high school cross country in the junior, in the junior race. I think that's fair, though, because you compare it. He was a high school senior. He was tiny, this scrawny little you know, pa- bag of bones, and he's racing against Africans. I'm sure there were some guys who were over 20 years old in that race, and he gets third. And one of the guys who beat him is Kenny Sabakele. I mean, no one's beating him in cross. And American men were nowhere close to meddling in that race. And haven't been close since. Before or after. But, but I think Tegenkamp was in that race, and he was fifth. So if you take Ritz out, he would have been fourth. Now, he was like, what, 10 seconds back or something. But anyways, so you have that bomb at World Cross. You have the bomb in his marathon debut. Also, I remember just, I don't know what year it was, John. I don't know if it was Ritz's senior year, but he, it was the NCAA track meet in Austin, Texas. Robert Cheserit, Bernard Lagarde's brother, and whatever happened to that guy, he fell down in the 5,000, lost his shoe, loses about 100 meters, and gets up and just wipes the floor with Ritz. And I remember thinking, Ritz was my hope for the generation. At the time, I'm like, we can compete with Africa. And then I'm like, oh, my God, Ritz looks like a JV runner. So that, that, that was bad for me. Then he never wins a track title as a pro. I mean, that's just bad luck, though. He coincided with – I mean, if, if you didn't have Galen Rupp out there, Galen Rupp was – the greatest American 10,000 meter runner of all time. And he, his prime coincided with Dathan Ritz and high. Now I think Ritz, I don't think Ritz was second in many of those races though. I think he was probably second in 2009. I, I'm going to look up his USA finishes right now. Actually, he was third in 2007. He was second in 2009. He was third in 2012. He was second in 2013. So if it wasn't for Rupp, he would have two us titles on the track. Yeah, in 2009, I mean, Ritz did run incredible at Worlds. Just, it didn't, as I said earlier, it didn't get any notice. 27 22, it was hot. It was high 70s. That's equivalent to like 27 flat to me if you put it in good weather. But Bakaley ran 26 46. Masai got the bronze in 26 57, so he's 25 seconds back. It, it, it kind of reminded me of, um, I think, was it when Rupp ran, was it 2008 in the Olympics? He ran a pretty good time. I remember thinking, this is before Rupp got really good. Um, you're up at the 2008 Olympics. Yeah, he runs 27:36. He got smoked. He's 13th. But I was thinking 27:36. It's hot. Like that's got to be close to 27:10. You know. So you can see progress if you're really looking at it. But again, it may not be fair to Ritz. Oh, I think it's look. If you look out for bombs for any pro athlete, you're going to find someone, especially as long as Ritz's career was. But he had he had a lot of great races. They all had great careers. I don't think we're trying to insult any of them. And I think that, look, we've had this discussion. I still don't really know who, like, I guess the argument, if you say who had the best career versus whose career would you rather have, those are two different things. But do you have an answer on either of those fronts, Robert? I mean, it's impossible. I mean, I, I, I my first instinct was to say none. So I don't want to take one of the three greatest careers in American history. I think it would have been frustrating to be, I, actually, I think Ritz's would have been the, perhaps, well, he, but he was so injury prone. I don't know. I mean, that's uh, really hard. I don't know. One John. thing that I really like is they all kind of have bragging rights over each other, though, depending on the race. Because you got 2003 NCAA cross and also high school. Ritz stomped them all at Foot Lockers in 2000. He had a record margin of victory. And then he beat Hall again at NCAA cross in 2003. Webb had turned pro by that point. But then 2006, 
Webb moves up to the 10K and beats Ritz in his 10K debut. Runs 27.34, which is... Hall's range... Sorry, Webb's range is ridiculous. 143 for 800 and 27.34 for 10K. And he, he was not really training like a 10K guy. That's crazy. And then Hall has big bragging rights on Ritz because at the 2008 US Olympic Trials on the marathon, he just crushes him and everyone else and wins by over two minutes. So all of them can go up and say, hey, I, I dusted you guys, you know? But then Ritz would say, isn't the point to do well at the Olympics? And Ritz actually beat him at the go. Olympics. And I got to get back into I, I apologize. If Ritz is listening to this, I don't want you to think I didn't think you had an amazing career. You did. But, um, you know, it's frustrating. But So, John, you're talking about bragging rights. I've looked up Tillis Jobson. Now, this probably doesn't have every race. But head-to-head, I've got all three pros. Ryan Hall, Alan Webb as pros. Got any idea? Ryan Hall and Alan Webb as pros? Did they, they even race? I guess it's zero and zero. I'm shocked by this. Ryan Hall, two wins. Alan Webb, zero. Ryan Hall beat him at the Adidas meet in the two-mile in 2006. Both races were 2006. 826 to 833. And then also Hall beat him in a 1500 in Europe somewhere. 343 to 346. How so does that happen? See, this is the other thing. Like, some of the inconsistency. How does Ryan Hall beat Alan Webb? 2006, Alan Webb. This is a year before he runs 330 and 346, and he loses to Ryan Hall in a track or in a 1500. That's insane. What was Ryan Hall still running 1500s in 2006 for? But hey, he was. Okay, so but let's get to Ritz. Ritz versus Hall is pros. And again, this is where Ritz gets the bragging rights. Five wins to Hall's two wins. So Ritz beat him, um, destroyed him in the I guess at USA's in 2006 in the 5,000, 1316 to 1340. Beat him in Lucerne that year, 1325 to 1334. Beat him at, NCA, at USA's in 2007, 10,000, 2831 to 2851. So it wipes the four of them the first three times they race as pros. Um, but then in the Olympic trials a year later, wasn't even close. Knockout for, for Ryan Hall. 209-02. Beats Ritz second place by over two minutes. That was a legendary performance. Um, but then... Ritz beat him at the Olympics. No, yes. And it doesn't have that race. For, oh, it does. It does. Um, but before that, so you, just, you had the Olympic trials in November. They both ran USA cross country that year. Ritz won it in 35.03, destroying Hall by 47 seconds. So we're not giving Ritz the credit there. Ritz also beats him in the Olympics. And then uh, Ryan Hall beat him again at the 2012 marathon trials. So Ritz 5-2 against Hall and Alan Webb and Ritz. Any predictions, John? They have four races. Four races. Interesting here. I'll go with Ritz. 2-2. Two two. Webb won the first two races. He beat him in a two-mile at the pre-classic in 2005 and in the Stanford uh, 10,000 race that we talked about. So 811 to 823 in the two-mile, 2734 to 2735 in the 10,000. But then in 2007, Ritz killed him in the two-mile pre, 811 to 823. They both got beat by Matt Tegenkamp, though, who set the American record in that race. And then 2013, <laughs> Ritz ran 1317 in 5,000. Webb in 1346. So Ritz coming on strong in the stats. So again, I think it's it's just Ritz has sort of the longevity in the stats, but in those moments, well, it's not fair that we're just totally discounting the world half. All three of the guys, thanks for the memories. 
Absolutely. I think it was a pleasure to watch those guys compete and they're, they inspired, I would say, a generation of American distance runners. So a little bittersweet that Ritz is retiring, but they're all moving on to coaching. Now Webb is the coach at Arkansas Little Rock. Ryan Hall coaches his wife, Sarah, who's a 222 marathoner, very impressive on her own right. And Ritz coaches a handful of pros, including Parker Stinson. So we might have some battle between Webb, Ritz, and Hall protégés going on. I thought it was interesting, John, just sort of how they've become sort of, I would say almost more similar the older they get. They've all, um, you know, well, Ryan Hall has always been deeply religious. Now, now sort of Alan Webb has become that way, and Ritz has, has got a strong Catholic faith. They're all religious and now coaches. And they all married uh, talented distance runners as well. Because Sarah Hall won the 2,000 foot lockers uh, the same year that Ritz won. Dathan Ritzenstein's wife, Kaylin, was also a footlocker finalist that year. And Alan Webb's wife, Julia, made USA's in the steeple. She was a good runner as well. So she made, she made the trials, didn't she, in the marathon? Or am I making that up? She did run the U.S. Olympic marathon trials this year. Yeah, I think so. Um, after having several, two kids, I think they have two daughters. Uh, so. All, all three of them, you know, it's it's it is interesting how similar their lives turned out, and I think especially with Hole and Webb, you look at their pro careers, and there was so many there were these moments of like absolute greatness, but then also the burnout because they pushed their bodies so hard. So it's very interesting to compare them. I think this is probably not the last time that will people will be having the debate about whose career was better. I think that one's gonna. <laughs> live on in bar arguments at the wild duck for 10 years or so, maybe more, probably more. All right, John, we just talked about three past high school legends. Let's talk about a new guy, Ryan. I don't even know how to say his last name. Is it shop scop shop? how do you want to go with it? John, let's give him a name. And I'm going to call him Ryan Shope. And, uh, We'll try to reach out to Ryan at some point. We'll pro- if he gets good enough, we'll learn how to pronounce his name, or at least I will. Oklahoma State signee. He's a Texas high schooler, Robert. So your home state. And he ran. This is super impressive. So obviously there are no high school races going on right now. He went out and ran a time trial for the mile. He ran four flat point seven eight. That to me is almost. I mean, I guess that's kind of how Bannister did it when he first broke four. Is it was essentially a time trial. He had some pacemakers for him, but. He wasn't really racing anyone else. Whereas you look at all the other high schoolers, Jim Ryan is the only high schooler who broke four in a high school only race. So is this to you, to you, is this more impressive than some of these guys who just got in a fast pro race and got dragged along to sub four versus running a four flat in a time trial? Which one is more impressive to you? I think running four flat point eight is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, He did have rabbits, but you know, I mean, it's a hand time, so it probably round up to like right around four hundred one if it was, you know, an actual FAT. But very impressive stuff. And this guy, I mean, seems quite talented. I mean, at the Texas State meet, he ran a fourteen fourteen five thousand. Like I want to call John Kellogg. Is that course short? Like this is a five thousand. It's not three miles. That's absurd. He won by twenty seconds. Um, now I don't know. He didn't do amazing at, at NXN or Footlocker. He got fifteenth at, at NXN. But this is a loaded NXN year. This is one of the things, Robert, is we were these runners, I feel the worst for them because they were robbed of their senior year. But also the track community. I mean, the senior the class of 2020 at the high school distance ranks is phenomenal. You've got this guy, Ryan Shope. You've got Nico Young, obviously, who ran 756 indoors at Milrose, set the national high school record there. 
he would have had a good chance to break four. Yeah, I th- he said he wasn't going to focus on sub four, but he would have had a shot at maybe challenging Galen Rupp's 1337 high school record. Cole Sprout ran 840 last year at Arcadia. Josh Methner, he broke the the course record of the Illinois State meet. We had him on the podcast. He's the Foot Locker champion. You've got a thing, Mo and Caitlin Tui on the women's side. I mean, there were so many great high schoolers who would have had a really good opportunity to run some incredible times this spring and also compete maybe at the Olympic at the Olympic trials. So I, I feel really disappointed that we missed out on their senior years because we're going to have racing again, but we're never going to be able to see what those athletes could have done as high school seniors. That's true, but I, I think in the long term it may be good for them. I'm not sure that the hype and the attention and the pressure is necessarily a good thing. Um, I, I guess we're getting more and more used to people running really fast in high school, so it'll never be the same. Even if we had a Ritz, Webb, and Hall come around now, it wouldn't be the same of like everyone's focused on them. You know what I'm saying? Like people have been putting up crazy fast high school times for years, but you know, I, I think maybe less pressure is a good thing. I think you could have that, but they would need to be running so much faster than those guys. Well, I guess if someone, if a kid runs 353 again in high school this year, people are going to be obsessed with them, Robert. I mean, that, that would still be, Drew Hunter was pretty popular when he was in high school. But yeah, you, the pro scene is so much better now in the United States that I do think you'd have to be like really dominant. But you, you also got to give credit to how crazy good those guys were. Like Ritz was crushing everyone. He won foot lockers by 20 seconds. You know, Ryan, Alan Webb running 353, we just haven't really seen that sort of thing ever since, you know? I guess Solinsky did win footlockers by 20 seconds as well. But anyway, moving on, there was another, this story came out, I think TMZ was the one who sort of brought this to attention. Chicago Bears wide receiver Ted Ginn Jr. has claimed that he beat Usain Bolt in a relay when they are in high school. And this is obviously a very interesting claim. Because a lot of athletes sort of say, oh, I could beat Bolt. Or there's people, every six months you see an article, this rugby player could is faster than Usain Bolt. Or this soccer player was clocked running faster than Usain Bolt. And it's always garbage. But Tekken Jr. actually was a very talented high school hurdler. He was the national champion in high school as a senior. And he beat Jason Richardson and world record holder Aries Merritt in that race. So this guy was no joke. But the story that he's peddling here, I think, is a joke. And the reason why is 2004, here's what I think happened. 2004, his school, Glenville, Ohio, did run at the Penn Relays. Usain Bolt's school, William Nib High School of Jamaica, was also at the Penn Relays that year and ran the 4x1, but they were not in the same race. So I think someone probably told Ted Ginn at some point, oh yeah, you know Bolt was at uh, the Penn Relays that same year that you guys won the title. And he was like, really? You know, we, we must have, we beat Bolt's team. That's crazy not realizing they won actually in the same race and they were running different legs and it was a relay. So it's very contrived, but I think that's where this whole story stems from. Yeah. Well, it's funny. He, he told TMZ, you can look it up. So I did look it up or I had, I tried to look it up. And then when I couldn't figure it out, I sent, put John on, on the research team, but um, yeah, Gen ran the second leg, Bolt ran the fourth leg of different races. So no, he did not be the same Bolt. We'll probably have to publish a piece to set the record straight, but he was incredible. I mean, he was, I think obviously um, would have had – it's hard to predict 
you know, from high school success to future pro success. But based on what he did in high school, he you could view him as a potential Olympic medalist in the hurdles. And I think the same thing is true for Robert Griffin III. I mean, he was an incredible hurdler um, in the 400 hurdles. So, you know, there, there are some football players that are world-class in track and field. But come on, he was not faster than Usain Bolt um, at, at the age that he said he was because Bolt that year, actually the year he's referring to, ran 19.91. So, um, you know, kind, kind of crazy. On that front, John, there's a number of doping stories that have happened in the last few weeks. You know, one thing, the world is shut down, but somehow we still have doping positives during COVID-19. I guess it takes a few months for it to come out. But, you know, uh, you had a fascinating piece where you talked to a Russian anti-doping expert. Uh, well, he's from Russia originally. He lives in Finland. Sergei Ilijov of he, he was sort of praising WADA and saying, like, look, if you look at the Russian championships, we ended up catching 38% of the women who ran the, you know, a, a European standard time in the 1500. They were busted for doping. So that is a pretty high number compared to the 1% you hear about positive tests and stuff like that. But I'm not sure if the how amazing that is, considering I basically viewed every elite Russian as being a doper. So 38% is better than nothing. Yeah, I think the studying the Russian thing, it's like, well, obviously – once it came out that Russia was operating a state-sponsored doping scheme, you're going to have more positives come out and you're going to have change in that system. It's not going to be as dirty as it once was. But I thought the interesting thing that Sergei illustrated in that study is that even, you know, it started in around 2012, 2013, the time started to drop off. And his argument was it was because the biological passport passport was introduced in 2009 and once people started to see other athletes being banned and sanctioned for ABP violations, that had a deterrent effect. And they were sort of able to measure that. And then through that, they were able to sort of estimate how much performance enhancing drugs actually benefited these athletes because they compared the winning times in the second half of that decade from 2008 to 2017 compared to the first half of that decade. So really interesting study in Q&A if you get a chance to check that out. And then the other thing, Roger, you mentioned these, you know, uh, anti-doping rules violations that some athletes have been suspended provisionally. Gabby Thomas and Deja Stevens, Alex Corioo to Oloi Tip Tip. He's a 58-minute half marathoner from Kenya. But the it came out during quarantine. These issues are from months ago. I mean, damn, Gabby Thomas sold out her missed tests from 2019. She's disputing the last one. So it's, it's not like they're skipping. You know, maybe we find out a few months from now that well, no, they're not testing now. I didn't mean to imply that it was a result of COVID, but let's talk about the Gabby Thomas case because it was it was depressing to me for a while. And I'm not saying that I didn't think she went to Harvard. She's the Ivy League record holder. She's a former NCAA indoor champion. I think indoor record holder maybe in the 200. NCAA indoor record holder. That's right in the 200 meters. But uh, <laughs> you know, and as an Ivy, we're both Ivy League grads. I'm not. I didn't mean to imply that like an Ivy League grad couldn't cheat. Of course, there's pretty pretty plenty of immoral people there. You know, rich people, Ivy League people, tons, tons, tons of people don't have ethics. Um, but this was depressing to me because I'm like, look, of all the people you think that would be able to show up for three tests, you would think that an Ivy League student would be able to figure that out. And I know young people are still not, you know, their brains aren't fully developed until 25 or something. But come on, like how hard is it to show up for three drug tests? And then if the answer is, well, no, the testers don't do it right. Then I'm like, well, then it's too hard to drug test people. So we should like, which is it? Like either the rules are too hard or we can't implement it. 
So I was kind of depressed for a day or two. Then I thought, okay, if anything good comes of this, her claim is she was in the house and the guy never knocked. The tester never knocked. And they called the phone. She didn't know they were there. So they, she missed the test, the last test. Um, but to me, moving forward, like, look, let's just improve the system. The tester should get out an iPhone and record themselves banging on the door. This shouldn't be that hard. There should be no doubt about this. I agree. I, I agree. I don't really understand why that didn't happen or... You would think there are phone records. I mean, this is, we'll see exactly how this case is adjudicated, what happens. But the, the other thing is, though, she got to getting to two missed tests already. That's, that's a red flag. Like, one, maybe you understand you should be on high alert. And then there's might have been some, I don't really know what happened on the second test. We'll see. But getting where you're in a position to have a third missed test, that's an issue in and of itself. Yeah, but I can see your first year as a pro, you kind of miss one, and then I forgot. Sure. Wasn't, wasn't there? Oh, the second one, she said she was in, like, she was in the vicinity of where she was going to be. So if I say I'm going to be at home every day and I'm at the grocery store, I guess that doesn't count. I'd like to see the details of that. What does that mean? But John, I'm not sure the phone records are going to help. I think what's going to claim is the tester's phone records would show, you know, assuming they have Google Maps on or something. Okay, yes, I went to that house. No, I'm saying call records. If you tried to call someone, which he was supposed to do, there should be a record of that event, right? I think she claims that she got a call, but her phone's on vibrated at 6 a.m. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. She yeah, wants yeah. a banging on the door. So yeah. the phone records will show he or she, the tester, was there. He or she, Gabby, was there. Yeah, there's no way to prove that he knocked on the door. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Now, suppose that she was in a house with 10 people. So if 10 people say, oh, I didn't hear a knock... Do you believe that, or they're going to have Gabby's back? This is going to be a, a tough case to to prove either way. I think. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Also, where has Deja Stevens been? Like, she was an Olympic finalist when she was in college in 2016. Again, Olympic finalist in 2017, U.S. champ that year, and has essentially just fallen off the face of the earth the last couple of years. Uh, I have, if you anyone knows what Deja Stevens has been up to, please let us know. Jonathan Gold at Let's Run dot com. She was a big talent. Well, John. We've been going on a long time, but there's one story that's been in the news a lot and running, and I think we need to address it. Um, not a great length, but Ahmad Arbery, uh, well, he was killed while running um, after a confrontation in Georgia, I guess in February, but it became a national story recently um, because it came out that the people that killed him had not been arrested and the people were outraged. The video came out of the killing, and now they have been arrested. Very difficult story, obviously depressing story for the country. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, first of all, it's a tragedy. A, a young man is dead, which I think is, it seems like it was very preventable. I, I it's some pretty senseless to me is the way it, it seems. But the biggest takeaway I had was it made me reassess my privilege. I have as a young white man going out on a run. I never worry about any sort of violence or anything happening to me. And I think I take that for granted, but hearing a story like this or other stories of what has happened to young women out on runs, I think it made me re-examine how lucky I am that I can just go out and it's never even a thought about something bad might happen to me when I'm running. And I, that's not always the case for other people of other races or gender. And that wasn't something I fully appreciated until I think I, I read this story. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I, I think that the death was preventable. It's sad that it happened. Um, I don't think that the case is, is, is 
as clear cut as some are making it out to be, but it's just, it's depressing. You know, I, I feel like this is a great country, but you know, I, I think that obviously racism still exists. You know, you talked about your privilege as a white man. I, I think that's true. I, often too, my go-to on, on these difficult topics is my, my former Hillary Clinton speechwriting friend. And, you know, I asked her, I said, what do you think? It's interesting to me because it is dangerous. I, I felt some, some insecurity running at night you know, depending on where I'm running. Um, and obviously living in Baltimore, there's certain parts of the town I wouldn't even dream of running in. So uh, I think it's, a lot of it depends on where you live, what time of day you're running. But when, when I was living with my friend and we were just out of college, like at night, I was like, is it safe for you to run, you know, as a female? So I asked her, I said, what do you think is more dangerous, running as a black man in this country or running as a woman? Um, and, and some people have wondered, there's been a criticism by, I got an email from someone, why haven't you been hyping this up on the, on the, on the, on the website? And I'm like, cause for the most part, we cover elite distance running. And this really isn't an elite distance running story. Um, for some, some could argue it's not really even a, a running story. I think uh, it's a running story, but it's, you can, uh, yeah, you can argue that that's not the, that's not the main component of the story. No, but some are debating that he wasn't actually out for a run. I, I don't want to get into that. Um, and, you know, I, I, there was a sexual assault of a woman in a boulder trail last week, and we didn't have that on the homepage either. So anyways, but my friend said, she's like, well, I think it may be more dangerous for women. That's possible. But she, I thought she really made a good point. But she's like, but women aren't regularly attacked by poorly trained police officers or want to be police officers who use vigilante justice. And it strikes me as easier to do something about this problem of sort of people using guns inappropriately in the name of justice, especially for relatively minor problems like burglary, than it is to do something about the problem of men being violent with each other and overly sexualized as compared to women. It's a really good point. Like, you know, I think that when we've seen it here in Baltimore, you know, ignoring the specific, if you ignore the specifics of the Freddie Gay case, or if you ignore the specifics of the Ahmed Arbery case, I feel like police have a very big responsibility um, and they need to be held to a higher standard. And I, I know this isn't actually a police case, but it's an ex-policeman and his son. So, you know, it's just, it's an interesting point. So sad story. Um, hopefully these stories can push us forward as a society moving forward. Agreed. So, John, I think that might wrap the show. Folks, if you want to get in touch with us, give us a call. 844-LET'S-RUN. 844-538-7786. But we did hear from one podcast listener. He has been thrilled with the work we've been doing the last few weeks, John, while Steve and Weldon are out on paternity leave. So we'll leave you with his praise for Let's Run.com. Until next week, stay safe, everybody. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is just a fan wanting to call in and uh, express my gratitude for what you guys are doing with the podcast. The interviews with the legends like Jim Ryan, Madeline Manning Mims, I really think you guys are nailing it. Uh, this is a time when tracks shut down and like everything else, we're looking for some great con content and, you know, I think you guys are providing it and I really want to say how much I appreciate it. You know, I'm uh, 55 years old, so I sort of was at the tail end of that era. Uh, I was at the era where you could, you know, pick up a weekly Sports Illustrated and see an American running star on the cover. Uh, so really an amazing time, and it's great that you're bringing a lot of this back to your audience. You give great context for some of the races uh, through the interviews. For example, uh, 
the Jim Ryan uh, interview, uh, there was all this context around what was going on around the Mexico City Olympics at altitude. And then I went and watched that race on YouTube, and it was just so much more rich to have that context in the background. So it's great what you're doing. Just wanted to express that. And also uh, the people you have on the con- on the podcast uh, from the modern era, you know, Des Linden, Chris Selinski. So, uh, you know, it's a tough time for a lot of track fans. Uh, we're really itching to get back on the track. We're really itching to watch races. Uh, but in the meantime, keep up the great work, and thanks again. Bye. Yeah, hi. Uh, this is just a fan wanting to call in and uh, express my gratitude for what you guys are doing with the podcast. The interviews with the legends like Jim Ryan, Madeline Manning Mims, I really think you guys are nailing it. Uh, this is a time when tracks shut down, and like everything else, we're looking for some great con- content, and, you know, I think you guys are providing it, and I really want to say how much I appreciate it. You know, I'm uh, 55 years old, so I sort of was at the tail end of that era. Uh, I was at the era where you could, you know, pick up a weekly Sports Illustrated and see an American running star on the cover. Uh, so really an amazing time, and it's great that you're bringing a lot of this back to your audience. You give great context for some of the races uh, through the interviews. For example, uh the Jim Ryan uh, interview, uh, there was all this context around what was going on around the Mexico City Olympics at altitude. And then I went and watched that race on YouTube, and it was just so much more rich to have that context in the background. So it's great what you're doing. Just wanted to express that. And also uh, the people you have on the con- on the podcast uh, from the modern era, you know, Des Linden, Chris Selinski. So, uh, you know, it's a tough time for a lot of track fans. Uh, we're really itching to get back on the track. We're really itching to watch races. Uh, But in the meantime, keep up the great work, and thanks again. Bye.